Well, if you have your Bibles there, would you like to turn with me, please, to uh, the letter of First Peter? We're going to be reading First Peter chapter four, and from verses one through to eleven. Either follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen behind me. The Apostle writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Keep your Bibles open there and uh, we'll pray and then we're going to have a look at this together, see what God has to say to us. Father, we thank you this morning for this living word. Lord, your word reminds us that you are indeed a relational God, a God who desires to live in relationship with your people. It reminds us of the fact that you are a God who desires that we would know you and that we would walk in your ways. Lord, it is a word that is used to convict us in our own lives when we go astray, used by the Holy Spirit to convict. Lord, this morning we pray for your word to go out with power. Lord, that your word would really come to, uh, to take uh, seed and fruit in our, bear fruit in our lives, in our hearts. Lord, we pray that the words that you would say to us today, Lord, would not just ring just in our ears, but would, uh, would ring true in our hearts and cause a genuine transformation in our lives for your honour and for your glory. Amen. You know, when Peter wrote this letter to uh, the Christians in his day in first century, uh, the first century Roman Empire, he was writing to Christians who were very much under attack for their faith. 
Christians were viewed in that particular time as enemies of the state. They did not participate in the popular forms of, of Roman entertainment or they, uh, they certainly didn't uh, participate in the indulgent and immoral lifestyles that the majority of people did in that particular society in that day. And so therefore to take a stand for, for Jesus Christ and to be his disciple really resulted in a lot of persecution and opposition to those who chose to take that stand for Christ. They were ostracized from the people who, you know, from their local communities. They resulted, uh, you know, it resulted in them being often rejected by, by friends, by family. It could mean a loss of employment. It could mean losing all of one's uh, possessions and even their home. And of course, for some, it even meant losing their very lives. As we think about Christians in that particular day, we can very quickly draw an inference from, from their situation to our own, can't we? Christianity today is seen more and more as an enemy of a progressive Australian society. It's become quite apparent in the recent uh, debate and plebiscite surrounding the, the whole uh, same-sex marriage issue that uh, Christians who were opposed to this view were very much seen as being hateful and bigoted and intolerant. They were seen as very much enemies of society. Christians who opposed these sorts of things were seen to be out of step with societal norms. A growing number of people in Australian society are certainly in increasingly are vocal in their opposition to, uh, to Christians and to the Christian church. Now, we may not be losing our lives for Jesus Christ and for our faith, but there are certainly numerous examples today of believers who are certainly suffering plenty of opposition and persecution in many forms. We see it in the public ridicule and humiliation of people, particularly in the public sphere. You don't only got to look at uh, examples of, uh, of Lyle Shelton, who used to head up the Australian Christian Lobby, and, uh, and people like Israel Folau and Margaret Court, and their outspokenness towards these things, and to see the ridicule and, and humiliation that they have to endure. But you know, even our own lives, I'm sure there are probably some even here in our congregation this morning who have lost friends because of the fact that they're taking a stand for their faith, for the truth of the gospel. Maybe you've lost more than friends. Maybe you've been rejected by family. Maybe you've been rejected by friends and, and, and workmates. Perhaps it's even translated across to the fact you've even lost jobs. You know, even there are uh, Christian, particularly Christian academics today in universities and things like that who are in fact being forced out of their jobs because of the fact that they hold true to the Christian faith. I was at a local Baptist minister's fraternal this week and one of the guys there was, uh, and from this, you know, just from this local area, was sort of sharing about uh, the situation that their church finds them in. They actually don't have a building that they own as such, but they actually sort of meet in, in a place where they actually have a lease for it. And their lease is coming up for renewal and they are really struggling to actually find a place where they can meet as a church because they're being turned away by a lot of places because of the fact that they are a Christian church. Opposition and persecution is going to increase even more. 
So how are we as Christians to respond? How are we as followers of Jesus Christ meant to respond to these kinds of things in our lives? And particularly as these things continue to grow and uh, gain even more momentum in our society. Well, this is what Peter discusses here in this passage in, in 1 Peter 4 this morning. And he urges his readers and us to do three things. And so we're going to look at those uh, in turn. The three things are this. First of all, we need to have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. We see that in verses 1 to 3. The second thing is we need to keep the big picture in mind. We see that in verses 4 to 11. And the third thing is, is we need to be committed to loving others and being channels of God's grace. And we see that in verses 8 to 11 of our passage this morning. So if you're taking notes, you might like to uh, follow along. Uh, I'll be putting some, uh, some PowerPoint uh, things up on the uh, screen behind me. The message today is entitled, Be Authentic, Having the Mindset of Jesus Christ. So let's look at our first point this morning, having the same attitude as Jesus. Look at verses 1 to 3. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human fat passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in all these different ways, but we ourselves need to live for the glory of God. The choice that Peter's audience faced was very, very clear. It's a choice that we face as Christians today, and it is this. Are we to follow the crowd, or are we to be obedient to God? You know, when it comes to opposition for our faith, we can choose, certainly, to take the path of least resistance, to go along with the values and practices that are acceptable to our society and our culture in which we live. That's the easy way. We can sort of just blend in with the crowd and not even stand up for, uh, for Jesus and, and, to, and to make a stand. We can just keep our faith kind of like, you know, a private thing to, to, to perhaps act out within our homes or just within our church here. But is that how God calls us to stand for Jesus? No, it's not. Of course, the alternative is in very much to be obedient to God. The choice is very, very clear. Go with the flow or be obedient to God and therefore risk standing out and copying this abuse and opposition. In order to motivate his readers to stay true to God, Peter points us to the example of Jesus Christ. He says, arm yourselves with the same attitude as Jesus. And as we look at Jesus, we see that he himself chose to obey God regardless of the costs. That he consistently chose to obey, even through suffering and death at the hands of those who opposed him. You know, as you go through, the, as you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus was misunderstood. He was misrepresented. He was even seen by his own family as a bit of a lunatic. He was rejected, he was ridiculed, he was abandoned, he was treated unjustly and ultimately it would cost him his life. And Peter's saying, if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, then we ourselves need to recognise that we will also suffer like our Saviour Jesus. 
And Jesus in uh, John uh, in uh, John fourteen to seventeen, this beautiful uh, this beautiful discourse that Jesus gives to his disciples before uh, before his death. You know, he says to his disciples, he says, you know, you think this world hated me first, and it's going to hate you. But Jesus says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. So when we follow in the footsteps of Jesus and we endure suffering and hardship and opposition you know, in the same kind of uh, you know, vein that, uh, that, was, that was put on Jesus, we can also need to keep in mind that although Jesus went through the suffering, we need to recognise what the suffering led to. And the suffering led to victory, didn't it? Jesus, when he went to the cross, he knew that he was going to suffer at the hands of men, that he would, be, that he would hang there on the cross, you know, bearing the, the, uh, the shame and the scorn and the hatred that men would, were throwing at him. But he had, he had this, this wonderful picture in mind of knowing that through this, glory would come. And God says to us today that as we continue in this same, if we continue in the footsteps of Jesus, if we ourselves are prepared to to suffer this opposition and this persecution, that even through that, God will bring glory to his name and he will help us through that. It says, arm yourselves with the same attitude as Jesus. That phrase, arm yourselves, speaks of a preparation for battle, for war. And Peter speaks of it here in terms of our way of thinking. Because to live according to God's will means that we are going to face a battle, not just with outward opposition, but also with inward opposition or inward temptation, the, the sin that we struggle with in our own lives. And this battle that we, that we fight, we need to make sure that we've got the right mindset for the battle. We need to make sure that our minds are clear about what the battle is and what God's purpose is in the midst of it. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul urges believers by saying this, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. In other words, having a right way of thinking, having a right understanding of sin about what is going on in our world today and about God's purposes and plan that is unfolding in our own situations and across the world, we need to have this clear in our minds what's going on so that we won't be conformed to the patterns of this world that our minds will indeed be transformed and renewed by God through his word and through his Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts. Having this right way of thinking is crucial in this battle for being steadfast in our faith and living holy lives. It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, in the verse just prior to that, where he speaks about having our minds transformed, he says that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. So as we live our lives for God, the key to doing that, first and foremost, is having a clear understanding in our own minds of, of what is going on in our world and what God's plans and purposes are. We are to adopt the same mindset as Christ did. And that means also to count ourselves dead to sin. 
Just as Jesus died to sin on the cross, we ourselves are to count ourselves dead to sin. That that, that, kind of, you know, that kind of lifestyle is really not for us anymore as followers of Jesus. It's not right for us. It doesn't line up with the kind of person that Jesus has called us to be. And Jesus himself has given us the power to be able to walk in that way. Look at Romans 6, verses 2 to 4 and 6 to 7. The Apostle Paul writes, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? In other words, Paul is saying there, you know, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, don't we know that we've, there's, a, there's a, a, a unity that happens with us in Jesus and that Jesus was put to death there on the, on the cross for our sin, that our sins were, were, were taken care of there in that particular, at that particular point in time. And as Jesus died to sin, we ourselves recognise that we're sort of putting that old life behind us. And we can do that because Paul goes on to say... He says, we were, buried there, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life or holiness. Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. See, having been united to Christ in his death and resurrection by faith, having his Holy Spirit who now indwells us, we have been given the capacity to say no to sin. Folks, as Christians, we need to to understand this in our minds that once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer the person we used to be. That is great news, isn't it? And we no longer have to live according to the the sinful passions and desires that once controlled us. We've been set free. You know, God's got this wonderful way of using the Old Testament and the New Testament in conjunction with each other. You know how uh, in the Old Testament he spoke about the, the, uh, the Israelites there in Egypt who were in bondage to slavery, in slavery in Egypt? And how God, you know, brought his people out of, out of slavery. This is the same kind of image that we need to have in our own minds about what, has God, what God has done for us in Jesus. We have been freed from the bondage of slavery to sin and we've been given the new capacity to walk in this newness of life that comes through faith in Jesus. And because of the fact we've got this indwell, the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. We've been given the capacity to say no and instead to live the rest of our lives for God, for his will and for his purposes. And so we need to see sin for what it is. Sin was the reason that Jesus had to suffer and die. So how can we enjoy that which cost our dear Saviour his life? Our goal as we're reminded in 1 John, is this, that our goal in life should be, in fact, to stop sinning. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And in 1 John 3, 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed or God's life through his Holy Spirit abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. 
Jesus' purpose for us is that we would stop sinning. Isn't it interesting that, uh, that that is God's purpose and yet we treat sin as though it is, it's just harmless, that it's a plaything. Sin is a destroyer, folks, destroyer of lives. And if we allow it to reign in our hearts, it will destroy us. And it will destroy our witness as God's people. The one thing that will destroy our lives is sin. You know, the Inuit Indians up in the, uh, the Arctic regions actually have... A, uh, a, a quite an impressive way of hunting wolves in their particular context. What they do is they get a really, really sharp knife and what they do is actually sort of coat it in the blood of an animal and then they let that freeze. And then what they do then is they put another coat of blood over it and they let that freeze and they coat it up layer by layer by layer. And then what they do is they walk out into the, uh, into the, uh, into the wilderness and they stick this knife in the ground with the blade pointing up and then they, and then they go away and, they, uh, and they, uh, they leave it. And the wolf, smelling the blood in the air, comes up to the knife and they start licking at the knife. They start licking at the blood on the knife. And they, uh, they get carried away and as they lick more and more of the blood off the knife, then all of a sudden the sharp edge of the knife becomes exposed and, uh, and their tongue starts to lick the, the, the sharp edge and the tongue becomes cut and very quickly they're no longer licking the blood of the, uh, off the knife but they're actually licking up their own blood. And by the morning the wolf has basically consumed all of its blood and it's there dead on the ground next to the knife. Folks, that's what sin does in our lives. We can get so caught up in it, so caught up in the so-called pleasures that it offers, but as we participate more and more, all it does is it sucks the very life out of us and it destroys us. And that's how we've got to view sin and say no to that. There was once a time when we lived entirely for ourselves and we indulged in our sin. But the Apostle Peter writes in verse 3 that that time is past. That time is past. And we need to draw a line under it. And we need to not go back there. But instead to have living for God's will and for God's purposes as our primary goal. Now, that doesn't mean that we'll be able to stop sinning completely. We won't because of our, you know, the fact that we are still have this human nature. So we will continue to, to fall into sin. But, but what the Apostle is writing here and, and what we're reading in, in passages like 1 John is the fact that, you know, it's, it's about actually having the right mentality and about striving for that God-centred life rather than focusing on our own passions and desires. And I think... As I take a look at the church in general today in the West, 
the reason why the church is in such a mess is because we have had not, we've not had the right attitude to sin. Living for God's will needs to be our primary goal. Of course, having the same attitude of Christ also means to keep the big picture in mind. We see that in verses 4 to 7 when the Apostle Peter writes, With respect to this, in other words, the way that the Gentiles used to live, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. I remember when I first came to faith in Jesus around, uh, oh crikey, 30 years ago. You know, some of my friends that I used to hang out with got angry with me and they started ridiculing my decision. They didn't understand that a change had taken place in my life and that I was no longer interested in doing some of the stuff that they did. But you know, if I had valued their opinion and their approval more than God's, then I could easily at that particular point just walked away from my faith in Jesus. But I believe that God's approval mattered more. Is that the same for you? Does God's approval and opinion of you matter more than what others think of you? I mean, whose approval or judgment do we value? Who do, you know, Whose do we put our confidence in? God's word actually says that all of us will one day have to stand before God and give an account of our lives. He says, but they themselves will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God himself is the final judge. And every single one of us are going to have to stand before him one day and give an account of our lives before him and very much give an account of how we responded to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we can't think that God is this lovely kind of grandfather figure up there in heaven who kind of looks down at us with this kind of patronising, you know, sort of approach and thinks, oh, look, he's, he's, fall, you know, he's, he's fallen into sin. Well, there, there, never mind, never mind. Come and live in my kingdom with me. It doesn't matter. God is not going to weigh up our eternal destiny with respect to how well we've lived our lives, whether we've, our, our good has outweighed our bad. No, God's judgment will rest solely and firmly on how we have responded to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the, and to the message of his gospel. And that means a recognition that we are indeed sinners who stand before God worthy of only his wrath and his punishment. But that through Jesus Christ, through faith in him, we, we, 
Jesus has paid, the, the, has paid our sin debt before God and we trust his sacrifice, not anything that we do of ourselves. Jesus says that one day we will all stand before God and give an account of our lives. Look at Revelation 20, 11 to 15. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. They're sobering words, aren't they? They are sobering words. And I pray that if you are sitting in this, in this auditorium today and you are counting on your works... You know, your good deeds to get you into heaven, then God's word clearly says that you, got, you are standing on sinking sand. That only through faith in Jesus Christ can you have your sins forgiven and be put right with God. But of course, the comfort we can have as followers of Jesus is that. Jesus, having paid for our sin, Romans 8, 1 says, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is our hope. There is no condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is our guarantee of eternal life, folks. And Peter reminds us then in verse 7 that the end of all things is at hand. In other words, we are in the final stage of God's redemptive plan. Now, we don't know when Christ is going to return and, uh, and we're not meant to know when Christ is going to return. But he is going to come back. And that is, in terms of God's whole redemptive purposes, that is the last thing. That, 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 that's all we're waiting for to happen now, folks, is for Jesus to return. And once it happens, that's it. All of history will be brought to a close and God will go through that judging process and those who have rejected God will be cast aside, will be cast into the lake of fire and those who have trusted in Christ will live with him in eternity forever and ever and ever. And so Peter says, you know, when it comes to thinking about, you know, whose approval you really value, keep the big picture in mind. Recognise who is the real judge. The end of all things is at hand. And we await that final act when Jesus triumphantly returns. And to think clearly about this, the, the Apostle Peter says, should actually then remind us to pray. See in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. Clear thinking, having the right mind for the sake of our prayers so that we might pray effectively, that, that, that we might be praying for God to keep us faithful 
to his will. Because, folks, a fruitful and faithful spiritual life is one that is very much built on prayer. Let's, keep, let's get to our final point then. The third is this. Be committed to loving others and being channels of God's grace. Verses 8, verses eight to 11. It says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Jesus says to his disciples these words. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus, just before his death and resurrection, he met with his, 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 his disciples there in that upper room. And just before they sat down to the meal, Jesus took off his outer robes and he put a towel around his waist and he got down on the floor and he, and he washed the feet of his disciples. And he says, see, I have set you an example that you would follow after me. I have served you, now go and serve others. Having this same attitude as Jesus in terms of suffering also means to be people who are committed to loving and serving those around us. Jesus has shown God's grace and love to us. None of us were deserving of that. None of us deserved God's love and grace. And yet he poured it out on us freely through his son, Jesus. And he says, as I have done it for you, go and do it to others. Loving others is of supreme importance. Did you get that? The Apostle, the Apostle Peter writes, above all. Above all, that is a, this is of supreme importance. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples again, he says, how will the world know that they, that they are Jesus' disciples? What would they be know, how would they be known that they were his disciples? By what? By their love for one another. Living lives, of Je living lives like Jesus will mean living lives of service. Love should be the overarching characteristic of the disciple of Jesus Christ. And this love should be fervent towards one another. That word there, earnestly, means exerting maximum effort. Who here exercises at a gym? Okay, you're, a bit, you're obviously a lot like me. We <laughs> you know, you see these, these Olympic athletes and these people who go to the gym and stuff like that, and, they, and they, they, when they exercise, they exert every effort that they have you know in order to 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 build themselves up and to gain the the most out of out of their exercise and that sort of thing i can't speak of experience from experience with this i'm sorry but they strain do we are we the same when it comes to showing love for for, for those around about us do we actually strain and exert every effort imaginable to show love to those around about us. Because that's what we're being called to do here. Above all, love one another earnestly with maximum effort. It's going to mean treating others the way God has treated us. 
And God has not treated us as we deserve, but instead he has shown forgiveness and grace towards us. And as his people, we too should be forgiving and gracious to one another, seeking one another's best. By no means are we to condone sin or to seek to gloss over it, but what we also do is we do not call attention to one another's sin and make a big thing about it, so we pull them down in order to puff ourselves up in the eyes of those around about us. Love covers over a multitude of sins. Is that the kind of love we are keen to show to be forgiving and gracious. You know, when it comes to our sin, we, are sh- we should recognise, sh- sorry, when it comes to others' sin, we should recognise our own sin first and draw alongside fellow sinners in order to encourage them to repentance and to see them restored and built up. Folks, it is so easy to tear each other down, isn't it? It's so easy to, 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 to judge others. It's so easy to see the sin in their life. It's so easy to, 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 you know, to, to, to think ill of those people because of their sin. But in actual fact, God says, see the sin in your own life first and see the grace which I have shown you in the midst of your sin and then do that to those around about us. Folks, it saddens me when I see Christians tear one another down. We've got enough enemies in this world, don't we? Haven't we? We've got enough enemies in this world. When we, when we gather together as the people of God, whether it be here in this place or in our homes or wherever, we should be seeking to build each other up and to help each other in our walks with Jesus, to be faithful to God's will, not write them off and think, I'm so much better than you, you're on your own. Showing love towards others also means practising hospitality without grumbling. It means being open-hearted to all believers. In fact, every believer should find the Christian community to be a place where they feel accepted and embraced. No matter what it costs. I was at a, years ago in 2010, I was, at a, um, I was on a mission trip to, uh, to Fiji. I led a team from the, from the church here to Fiji and a few of us one night went along to, uh, to this, uh, this family's home. We had to drive quite a, quite a way out of Suva, out into the, uh, the middle of nowhere, into the, into the middle of the, the, uh, you know, the, the jungle, out, basically, out there. And we came you know, along this dirt road, and there was a sort of a little bit of a village off to, to one side. But there, just off to this dirt, the side of this dirt road, was this tin shack sitting in this shed. Now, honestly, we see better, better sheds for water pumps in Australia than we do for, for what these people were living in in Fiji and we were invited into their home to, 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 to take this home group with this family and there was a, 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 a husband his wife uh, I think it was uh, it was her mother as well as their two children 
a little, a little one and a boy who was around about 10 or 11. We actually had the home group in his bedroom. He was actually doing his studies on the, on the top bunk of his bed while we were having home group in his bedroom while he, was, while he was studying. And he was studying hard because he wanted to be a doctor. And as we sat there and we, we, we enjoyed fellowship with these people in the midst of their po- absolute poverty... You know, we just, it just rammed home to us just how blessed we are. And then at the end of the night, and we'd eaten before we got there, at the end of the night they brought out all this food for us to enjoy. And there was just plates and plates of it that just kept coming. And so we ate and we had beautiful fellowship, wonderful fellowship with his family. And at the end of the night we were driving back to Suva and the pastor who was with us said to us, he says, do you realise that the food that those people served you that night, that was their whole weekly budget for food. That was all the food they would have for a whole week. And they gave it to us. Without any question whatsoever. In fact, it was a joy for them to give us all that they had. That's the kind of hospitality God is talking about here. For us to just lavish grace and goodness on those around us, no matter how much it costs us. Finally, showing love and being a channel of God's grace will mean using our spiritual gifts for the benefit of others. We see that in verse 10. You see, God says that the the purpose of our spiritual gifts, when we become a, a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and then gives us the ability or abilities in order to be able to serve Christians and God's church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, our gifts are given in order to build up God's church and to help us attain maturity in the faith. Are you using your gifts for God and for the building up of his church today? And when this full range of Christian activities is done with love, then it says that in all things... God will get the glory in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Yeah, we do live in a society and world that appears, that is growing more and more hostile and opposed to God and his people. And yes, we may feel powerless at times in the face of such opposition. But this doxology here at the, end of this, at the end of this section, Peter reminds us afresh that all power and dominion ultimately rests with God. Not with man, not with society, not with, not with men's rules and all that sort of stuff, but ultimately with God, the one whom we serve in the name of Jesus Christ, our Heavenly Father. We are his and he will not fail us. I want to leave you with some words this morning from Isaiah 43, which themselves were written to God's people living in exile, living in a strange land, living in a foreign land surrounded by foreign gods and people opposed to them. God says this. And I want you to listen to how God views his people. But now... Thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, 
O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Why? Because I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour, God says. I am the Holy One of Israel, your Saviour. When we face hardship, when we face opposition, when we face persecution for standing strong and firm to God, those words should ring strong in our ears. God says to us, I have created you. I have formed you. I have redeemed you and called you by name. Child, you are mine. Remember that. And when you pass through all of these trials, whether it be the waters, the floods, the flames, or whatever, God says, fear not, for I shall be with you. I am the Lord your God, your Saviour. Aren't they encouraging words? Aren't they words that we can go out of this place this morning with them ringing in our ears thinking, you know what, it doesn't matter what happens out there as long as I stand, you know, if I stand strong and firm for God, yes, the suffering will come, but who is on my side? The Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of glory. He is on our side. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and then we're going to share around the communion table. Father, we thank you this morning that you are indeed our God, that you have formed us, created us, called us, redeemed us as your people. Thank you for the grace which you have poured out into our lives. We pray as we go from this place today that we will indeed, in the midst of, of opposition, in the midst of suffering and persecution, we will indeed have the same mindset as our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. We will ourselves very much keep the big picture in mind knowing that you are working out your purposes and have everything in hand and that in the midst of that we will seek to love others earnestly with every fiber of our being that we will show hospitality without grumbling and that we will use all that we have for the building up of your body the, the church and for reaching out to the lost in order that they might know the same joy that we have of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come around this table this morning again,